Good morning again, Lindsay. Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. We're glad everyone is here. Uh, we hope uh, the week has gone well, or at least okay. And we hope the next week does as well. If you are here for the first time, I'm looking, I don't see a whole lot. It might be your first time, but if you're visiting, we're glad you're here. We're in the early parts of our month-long study on heroes. Last week, we talked about Miriam as our first hero. This morning, today, we're going to talk about Elijah. We're going to talk about Elijah as one of our heroes. Next week, the hero is going to be Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Then we'll finish with a female hero at the end of the month. So let's talk about Elijah this morning. James 5.17, was read just a moment ago, said Elijah was just as human as we are. Some translations say he was subject to the same kinds of passions as we have. And I think that whole idea of suffering, which is what passion means, is the idea of being human. He was every bit as human as we are, and yet for three and a half years his prayers kept the rain from falling. So, wow. All I know about Elijah is that at the start, I really want to know more about this man. What kind of man is this whose prayers keep the rain from falling for three and a half years? He's just as human as we are, subject to the same temptations, difficulties, and discouragements. You know, I'm afraid sometimes that when we fall to hard times, when we encounter a temptation or a problem, we tend to think and feel. Why is this happening to me? Well, I promise you, in a town the size of Nashville, in a community the size of wherever you were staying, it's happened to lots of other people before. Rarely are we going to encounter the first time a problem has ever arisen in all of human history. He had the same kinds of difficulties, temptations, and discouragements as all of us did, and yet his prayers were very effective. Look at what his prayers accomplished. He was an Old Testament prophet in hard times, a definite hero. So what can we learn from his life? We're going to have a great deal of reading from the text. So the text will do most of the teaching this morning. Let's look at the first part of that in 1 Corinthians 16. I'm sorry, 1 Kings 16. I don't know where Corinthians came from. Verse 8, 16, verses 29 through 33. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, the kingdom the people of Israel divided into a southern kingdom called the kingdom of Judah. Asa is the king there, and a northern kingdom at this time. So in the 38th year of the king ruling over Judah, the southern kingdom, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he, Ahab, took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbal, king of Sidonians, went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel 
who were before him. Now that's saying a lot. Ahab, in the scheme of things, is a relatively early king of the northern kingdom. And so there are plenty of kings afterward who are going to be, in many ways, just as evil. But before him had come Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is criticized throughout Old Testament history with a common phrase you read it over and over again. Uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Over and over, that's his legacy. He led the northern kingdom to sin. Omri. Omri is such an important king from historical purposes that he is the king that we have inscriptions about from the northern kingdom. The nations round about knew Omri. In fact, their nickname for the northern kingdom was essentially Omri land because he was such a powerful and important king. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about him, other than he did not follow the Lord and serve other gods. There's a small little lesson here to the side of that. No matter how important we may seem or people may seem out in society or to the world, in God's eyes, none of that matters. What matters is whether we serve the Lord or we don't. Omri is not important in the Bible because he was simply another individual who had decided to worship idols and not follow after what God wanted. Ahab, as the son of Omri, really starts stirring things up in the northern kingdom. And as the same right here, based on whoever had come before, Ahab has risen to the top in terms of all the evil things that he did. One of the worst things he ends up doing is worship uh, is uh, marrying Jezebel, who comes in really as a priestess of Canaanite religions. That's what she was. She was a priestess of the Canaanite religions that worshipped Baal and Asherah, designed to focus on the fertility of the land. The religions round about the people of Israel, the land of Canaan, were focused on fertility. The worry was always had was when winter came, everything looks dead. It's always come back to life in the spring, but how do we know it's going to happen again this year? How do we know things are going to grow again? And so the gods they worshipped were really kind of fixated or aimed at fertility, that the land would recover. If the land doesn't recover, if crops don't start growing, if it doesn't get warmer again, there won't be any food, and we will die. And also, part of fertility is the whole idea of the human race's fertility. If we do not continue to have children, there won't be anybody coming after us who will be able to populate the land and survive. And so, fertility of the land and people was the focus of these Canaanite religions. Ahab embraced them. I suspect a good bit of that may have been that he was doing what his wife wanted him to do. I mean, you marry a priestess of the Canaanite religions, probably you're going to be doing a lot of things that she would have been doing already. But the people in the northern kingdom had already, as it were, moved away from God anyway. And Ahab continues with that movement. He provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger more than all the kings of Israel who would come before him. What a horrible legacy he leaves behind. Now, we pick up in chapter 17, verse 1 of 1 Kings, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbite in Gilead. 
city that he's from, Tishbe. It sure seems like Tishbite is probably some kind of a synonym here from him being from Tishbe. I mean, somebody who lives in Laverne, what do you call them? Is it a Lavernite? A Lavernian? I, I don't have any idea. I've never heard somebody call them that, right? We say Nashville and in Nashville. But what would you say about Brentwood or Laverne? I don't know. So perhaps Tishbite is simply a translation of the idea that he came from Tishbe. I wouldn't make any more of Tishbite other than he came from Tishbe, so that's probably where he came from. Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, so this man who suddenly shows up, goes to the king of the northern kingdom, Ahab, and says, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He appears from out of nowhere. He does not appear in the text. He's not in first Kings until right now. And he delivers this message to Ahab of drought is coming. It is not going to rain as I stand before the Lord God who lives except by my word. How do you think Ahab took that message? You're the king and somebody comes in and tells you, hey, buddy, first of all, it's not very respectful to the king. This message can't be a very respectful message to the king. Now, I suspect after Elijah leaves, Ahab probably just kind of ignored it cranked. Kings get cranks. People in office get calls from cranks. But over the course of the next few days, week, maybe a month into it, right, the rain has suddenly stopped because it does. He starts getting more and more concerned that this guy who said he was speaking from the Lord may in fact have had something. As soon as he pops in, he disappears. Elijah popped in and said these things to Ahab, there's a drought coming. And then God essentially tells Ahab to move away, get out. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook, the creek, Cherith, which is east of Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens, the birds, to feed you there. So he, Elijah, went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Well, he had said there was not going to be any rain in the land. And creeks and rivers and brooks eventually dry up when there's not any rain. But where were the birds getting the food? I don't know. You know, it's possible it's a miracle that God is miraculously causing the, the food to show up, maybe in the, the birds. I don't know, right? Or we've all seen birds go and look for things in the street that are edible, right? Usually it's around my car, you can shoot them away, right? They're getting a French fry, somebody left on the ground. I have always kind of humorously wondered if they were stealing bread and other stuff from the windows of people nearby. Then somebody put out some bread to cool off in their window of their house, and these birds were coming in and flying off, grabbing essentially a slice of bread or a small thing of bread, taking it to Elijah. Don't know. But God took care of Elijah. And he brought food in the morning and evening, and had him living by this, this creek, this brook. To water with them. 
God takes care of you, but the creek dries up. Now what? Now what? Then the word of the Lord came to them, right? God speaks to him again. He's been at this creek, this brook, I don't know how long. The creek dries up, and God speaks to him again, starting in verse 8. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. God tells him to go and stay with the widow who has a son. Now this is not the focus of our, our lesson this morning. But because she trusts Elijah and feeds him, her flour and her oil do not run out. A miracle occurs where she is continues to have flour and oil to be able to feed her and her son and Elijah. But her young son dies. At her grief, she says, What have I to do with you, man of God? You come in here and now my son dies. So much for helping you and doing what your God wanted me to do. That's kind of the feeling she throws at Elijah. But at her grief, Elijah, through God's power, raises her son back alive. Because she had trusted in God and did what God had asked her to do by feeding Elijah. She and her son survived, or they might have died, the drought was that severe. And when her son dies for some potentially other reason, Elijah raises her son back from the dead. After many days, this is chapter 18, where's Elijah been? Staying with his widow. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. The third year of what? Three years have gone by since Elijah first met to Ahab and said, Ain't no rain going to be coming. Three years have gone by, God says, Go back. Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. The drought's going to be over after three years. I can't imagine the yards in front of people's houses. My, my grass starts brown after just a week of no rain. Can you imagine what's the land look like? How many green shrubs, how many trees have no leaves on them or just brown leaves barely clinging on? What about the people? God says it did not rain for three years. That's a pretty horrible drought. What would Nashville look like if it didn't rain here for three years? Bad. Really bad. Picking up in verse 17, when uh, Elijah goes to Ahab, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab hasn't forgotten Elijah. He may have kind of ignored him at first as being a crank when he first came in and said, No crank's going to be coming, I get out here. Go, go away, that kind of thing. But three years ago, I know Randy has not forgotten Elijah. And so his greeting is, I want you to do troublemaker. You've done nothing but trouble the people of Israel. Is it you, O troubler of Israel? Look how Elijah answers Ahab. And he, Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. You think I've been troubling Israel? Actually, it's you, Ahab, and your fathers, because you have led the people of the north, 
God's people to be focusing on worshiping idols. So he's going to set up a grand contest, a defining contest. Whose God is God? Is it Baal and Asherah, the male and female oriented deity of the Canaanites that Jezebel had been a priestess of, that Ahab and the kings before had been worshiping and following after and encouraging all the people of the north? Or is it the God of Israel? It sounds strange to say because the kingdom of Israel hasn't been worshiping God. How strange is that? The God of Israel, Israel isn't recognizing God as God. So Elijah says, I tell you what, we're going to find out who's really God out here. Go and summon all of these prophets, 850 total, to Mount Carmel. And there's a picture of what Mount Carmel looks like today. It rises up from kind of out of nowhere to something like This giant place, right? I don't know if they're on the top of the mountain or on the side of the mountain, but that's the place where they have been summoned to Mount Carmel. That looks like it could have been taken some 3,000 years ago because look how all the grass is. Right? I mean, it looks like a drought of time anyway. You imagine how much worse it would have been if it really had been three years of no rain. Mount Carmel. Elijah has two altars built and a bull set upon both altars. One altar is going to be for the priests of Baal and Asherah to offer to them. And what's going to be the one that Elijah would use to make an offering to God? These 850 prophets come. They go first. Elijah offers that they go first. Whichever God responds, Elijah says, by sending fire out of the sky to consume the offering is real. And you can imagine it's almost like, all right, ready, set, go. You know, call out. Wait, your God called out fire. For hours and hours and hours, they call upon Baal and Asherah, their gods, to notice them, to come and consume the sacrifice. Now, here's a, a point that doesn't come out of the text, but it's very real. Remember, Baal and Asherah were gods, and the religion was on, based on the fertility of the soil, the fertility of the land, the growing the ability of the land. Whenever drought happened, the way the religion viewed it is that their gods had gone away, had forgotten about their job, weren't paying attention to the work they were supposed to be, and in fact that they were considered potentially to be imprisoned, bound, jailed, the wrong idea, but they were imprisoned really under the ground. And so one of the reasons that the prophets are shouting out so much is to make sure they hear them because they are not here. They're not nearby. Otherwise, they would have been doing what they needed to be doing by sending rain to the land. Supposedly, they were imprisoned under the earth. Of course, we know in reality they weren't imprisoned under the earth. Let's pick up with the text. Elijah the prophet came near. After all this time, the prophets of Baal and Asherah failed. It's Elijah's turn. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Notice it's Israel again, not Jacob here. He's making the point to the people of the north. He's your God, not these other things. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your 
your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the, this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What a great prayer to God. What a great statement. May the God will appeal, may the God. What happens? Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and whipped up the water that was in the trench. Elijah had said, let's make it really tough for these guys. Let's pour water all over it. You know, we're not just talking as dry as everything was. You can imagine the spark that was setting the whole country on fire, right? So no, no, no. I know everything's dry. Go find some water somewhere pour it all over us, make it harder. Not just a little spark that falls from the skies. God's really going to have to work on it if he's going to consume the sacrifice. Well, when Elijah calls out to God, not only is the bull consumed, the rocks and everything else, all the water that had been poured all over the altar is whoosh, gone. Look at verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Prophets of Baal and Asherah had their opportunity, cried out, cut themselves, appealed to them, called out for hours and hours and hours. Elijah says, Are y'all done? Is it my turn yet? Tell you what, pour water all over. Let's make it tough for the God of Israel. Pour water all over everything. He appeals to God, whoosh, right away. All burned up. Very convincing demonstration. The Lord, He is God. The people said, The Lord, He is God. Elijah said to the people, Seize the prophets of Baal, and I assume the prophets of Asherah too. Seize them and let not one of them escape. And they seized them. Elijah brought them to the brook, Kishon, which is nearby in Carmel. And they slaughtered them there. Let's get rid of all these priests and priestesses. Let's kill them all to remove this scourge from the land. That's a picture of the brook Kishon that is near Mount Carmel. If you killed 850 people, I suspect the water probably wasn't looking too bad. But they killed them all. Now, on Mount Carmel today, to memorialize this, remember they always want things for tourists, but also to memorialize what Elijah did on Mount Carmel, they put this statue up. I love that statue. One thing, Elijah looks so handsome there as a bald man. But Elijah the prophet, Elijah the prophet has that sword up. Who's there at his feet? That's symbolized one of the prophets, the priests of Baal or Asherah. He's ready to kill They did that. 850 times killing to show that the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, Elijah had been in great mood with this, right? He goes from this really, really high point. You would think after this kind of triumph, you would have been on cloud nine, you would say, right? Yet Elijah's life is threatened by Jezebel, so what happens? Jezebel's really irritated. He's killed all her priests. When she goes to dinner that night, remember, they've been eating at a Jezebel's table. She's like, where is everybody? Elijah killed them all, so she's really kind of upset. Elijah runs away from Ahab and Jezebel. He goes into hiding. 
because they're looking for him. Really, really to celebrate. First Kings 19, Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. I don't know what a broom tree is. But came and sat down under a broom tree. He asked if he might die. Say, it's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. I am no better than my father's. My father's failed you, and I have failed you as well. He's in despair. He wants to die. Too often, once the thrill of victory is gone, people bounce all the way to the other end of the emotional spectrum. You see that in athletes. They win, they have an answer, and they're like, what's the What's the point of my life now? Just let me die. Which is always the wrong response. Always the wrong response. Elijah, God responds to Elijah's statement here. Just let me die, Lord. Just let me die. God says, the word of the Lord came to me. Have you noticed? That's the way it says it each time. God speaks to him. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you out here in the wilderness a day away from where all the action is? He said, I've been very jealous, very enthusiastic. That's not jealous in the way we use them. Jealousy is a bad word. This is from the root word. Zeal, having a lot of zeal and enthusiasm. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they saved my life to take it away. I'm the only one left, and they're after me, God. They're after me, and just let me die. That's why I'm here. I'm the last faithful person serving you. Just let me die. The Lord said, Go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to me. Far from being the only faithful servant of God, God says there's a whole lot more than just you, Elijah. Maybe the reason Elijah doesn't see them is because he's taken out of the wilderness, swamping up against the tree, wherever that broom tree is. Woe is me. It's not a good look on me. You ever met somebody where they're like, oh, my God, all of a sudden that's it. Woe is me. Look how bad my life is. One of the reasons sometimes our lives are bad is because we're standing around saying how bad our life is. Rather than focusing on something bad that has happened to you or that has happened to me, God says to Elijah, get up and get back to work. Get up and get back to work. There's stuff that still needs to be done. Why are you over here? I'm paraphrasing. Moping around. Feeling all pitiful about yourself. He's not in any way diminishing the fact that Ahab and Jezebel were looking for him. And if Ahab and Jezebel found Elijah, they would kill him. That's not the point. The point is, God says, there's work to be done getting back into it. So my suggestion to us is, if we are ever tempted to feel like, woe is me, look how bad things are, just let me die, God. I suspect God's response would be pretty much the same as it was to Elijah. Why don't you get up and get back to work? Who said it was over? Right? Can you imagine if this is a sports team analogy? Team behind 50 to nothing at halftime. What's 
a certain way to lose the ball game. You go out of the locker and go to your cars and leave the stadium at halftime. You're certain you're going to lose if you just drive home. The only thing you can do in that kind of situation is to get back out on the field. And that's kind of what God says to Elijah. If you quit now, then maybe you are as bad as all your forefathers. Get back out there. There still needs things that still need to be done. So what happens? What lessons can we learn from Elijah, this hero? I'm still going to call him a hero, but look at what I want just to focus on in terms of lessons today. Elijah, I will say, is a man of confrontation. His culture was given over to immorality and idolatry. This is evil with a capital E. The, the people were serving Baal and Asherah. Immorality was the way people lived. He was in a really horrible time in a horrible land doing horrible things. It wasn't very easy to be a believer and a follower of God in Elijah's day. It never is easy. It's not easy today. Is that a reason to quit? Why did it work out well for Elijah? How can it work out for us? Look at a couple of the things he says. Verse 17, 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, first Elijah believed he knew that God was alive. Do we really? Do we really, really know God's there? One of the basic causes of a woe is me is that we have lost touch with the reality that God's really there. We don't seem to think that he is. Because if we know God's there, then we should have, we're going to have those brief moments of woe is me, don't get me wrong, but we need to recover from it. Because just like Elijah was told, there's a lot more to do to get going rather than having the woe is me moment. Second, Elijah believed in God's power. Look at the statement. As the Lord God of Israel lives, there will be neither dew nor rain these years. God had this power. Elijah believed it. Do we really believe in God's power? Or do we think of things, ways that things just aren't going to work? We got something that we need to do that we sit around and go, well, that'll never work because. Yeah. In a business environment, I can always come up with five or ten ways something is never going to work. How about we look for the one or two ways that we could try to make it work? It may still fail, but let's give it a try. If we sit around as God's people, as a church, and we focus on all the ways something's never going to work, we may be tempted to not try, to not give it an effort. God has the power. We believe it, and we should focus on using that power and get back to work. Elijah did. The second place, Elijah knew that he was God's representative. In 1 Kings 19 36, Elijah speaking to God, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I've done all these things as your word. He knew he was God's representative. We are all God's representatives. As his people, all that we do reflects on our relationship with him. 
got no God. Every Christian I know, somebody might say, they get hard times and they roll over. Let's hope that's ever said by any one of those of us. Do they see God in us or do they see despair? We are God's representatives here on the earth. And I would encourage us to live like it, like Elijah. In the third place, Elijah was a believer in God's power. Look at all he did in God's service. God has made promises to us. Do we believe in his power? God had the power to do everything Elijah asked of him. No rain, come down to consume the fires, that the oil and flour of the widow's food stores would not run out, that her son would be restored back to life. He knew God had the power. He acted with that knowledge that God had the power. God has made all sorts of promises about power to us, the people. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So often we fall into the trap. We seek the things, and then once we think we have them, then we believe we'll go and seek God. It's backwards. It's backwards. God demonstrates his power in the primary ways that we see him through the good news. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he did is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you believe that, if you trust God and what he has told us, then you can experience that power today. If you're not a member of his family, Gospel and good news of what Jesus did for you is the power that will save you. If you're a member of God's family, but you've had perhaps way too many of those woe is me moments, then we would encourage you to come. We will pray with you and ask God to strengthen you and us. It's never just you. Things that happen are common to all of us. To pray and ask God to forgive you and us and strengthen us so that we can get back to doing what God wants us to be doing. Elijah was a human, just as human as we were, faced the same kinds of things, made some mistakes. God told him, forget worrying about your mistakes, get back to work. If we can be of help in any way for you today, please come. Let's see how we see this.